In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the, above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them.
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he has done. He had done, excuse me. The next reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Vanessa, for reading that to us. And let me extend my welcome to Emma's. It's great to be here with you this evening as we commence this new series. I don't know if you've read or seen the film adaptation of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Narnia books, C.S. Lewis's series. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Edmund and Lucy... It begins upstairs in their cousin Eustace's home. Eustace in the film adaptation is, is brilliant. 
They are lamenting, though, Edmund and Lucy, that they are stuck with him for the summer holidays rather than being somewhere far more interesting, namely Narnia. Their longing is sharpened by a painting on the wall. It's a ship at sea that seems remarkably like a Narnian vessel. Eustace overhears the siblings talking about it, and he comes in and he begins to mock them for their childish imagination. He thinks the painting is downright rotten, and as they stare in it, the children begin to fall silent. Something peculiar happens. They can almost see the undulating waves move up and down. They can feel the wind blowing, almost hear the sound of the ship slicing through the waters, and feel or rather smell the air and the sea. Suddenly they are splashed with sea spray, and the water pours through the frame into the bedroom. In a matter of moments, there is no bedroom at all. Rather, they are gasping for air in a tumultuous Narnian sea. Like the Narnian painting, as we look at Scripture's story, it should, for us, come to life. It should sweep us into it, but we need to have awake imaginations for this to happen. Because stories are powerful, aren't they? Stories produce meaning in our lives. They shape the way we view and interpret our worlds. And we all believe some form of stories, whether it be consciously or unconsciously. Well, today we begin a nine-part series in the Bible. We've called it Stops in God's Mega Story. And along the way, we're going to stop at nine significant points in God's mega story so that we hopefully can see his great plans and purposes fulfilled again. Hopefully that we might see that the Bible is a story that makes sense of our lives. But we begin tonight at the beginning. It's as if you've pulled out your phone, your maps app, you've set the coordinate at the start, creation. We've set our direction, or rather the end point, the new creation or revelation, and it's plotted out the steps for us. But before we commence to think about this first stop in the story, in the Bible, it's probably helpful for us just to recap very quickly, even though we may be very familiar with it, what the Bible actually is. See, the Bible is a human book. It's an ancient library. It's composed by at least 40 authors spanning thousands of years, and styles and personalities, as it's written, are collated and all put together in one volume. Yet, it's also a divine book, because ultimately, there is one author. The Holy Spirit inspires these authors what to write. I think I've used this example before, but we attribute the music to Louis Armstrong that is played, not his trumpet. His trumpet is the instrument through which his breath passes, and so it is with the Bible. The human authors are the instrument that God's breath passes through, so much so that we can say that what the Bible says, God says, 
It's a human book, it's a divine book, and it's got an overarching story. It's progressively revealed. It consists of two main sections, Old and New Testament. The Old Testament points forward to what Jesus would come and do, and the New Testament is furnished with Old Testament images and expectations. But also, the Bible has one main theme and character. The central character of the story is God, who is presented as a great king. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. A New Living Translation, it says, The Lord is king. Throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time again, the Lord presented as the king who reigns. Human kings or, or powers, kings and queens are often bad, or at least conflicted, but throughout the Bible, God's kingship, his rule, is always spoken about as life-giving and good. And God comes to establish his kingdom, and his kingdom is the theme, the thread that runs through the whole of the Bible story, the theme of God's good reign through God's people over God's good place, the world and in each part of the story, we'll, we'll reflect on different parts of this as we go through. But today we begin with the pattern as it's set up in creation. We will see the kingdom, God reigning through his people over his place. But we'll see that that image, the way it's supposed to be, is spoilt as well through human sin. And we'll get a distant glimpse of how Jesus will come to re-establish his kingdom. With that set in motion, well, let's, as it were, set our coordinates at creation. We're going to follow through tonight asking four questions of this Genesis account. Where are we? Who are we? What's gone wrong and what's the solution? Well, let's begin at the beginning. Where are we? Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We are in a created world. But before we ask what it means that we are living in a created world, we must ask first what the creator, God, is like. But as we do that, we should tread carefully and humbly because we are so limited in the ways that we can speak about God. He is so gloriously other than us. We can only speak of that which he reveals to us. And thankfully he does in this account. But what's interesting too is that there are other accounts of the creation, of the beginnings, other explanations as to why the world exists as it is. And they bear some similarities too the account that we read in Genesis. For example, the ancient Babylonian account of the Enuma Elish. And actually, what's revealing is if you look at what the differences are. What does Genesis 1 tell us about God? Well, firstly, it tells us that God is one. In pagan myths, creation is the result of many gods. Genesis presents God, though, as one. Later on, God is presented all the way through Scripture as 
the one and only God. We know from the rest of the scriptures that this one God is Trinity. In the Bible, there are three persons and one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get a glimpse into this in the way that Genesis refers to God in verse 26 of today's reading, which reads, Then he said, then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Genesis presents God as one. He is the one God who reigns and rules as king. The second difference we see is that it presents God as the creator, not part of the creation. For many pagan myths, creation is the result of accidental and, and has, uh, kind of a haphazard war of the gods. But Genesis presents an entirely different picture for us. There is a distinction between the creator and creation. God is not part of creation, but rather he's responsible for its existence. God is the creator. There is a creator and creation distinction. But though God is distinct, wonderfully we see that he is not distant. This is the third difference. God is personal. God is good. For many pagan myths, the gods were cruel and humanity was designed as an afterthought to serve these grumpy gods. Whereas Genesis presents a good God who creates a good world for humanity. Humanity is the climax of the creation account and they are bestowed with dignity and responsibility. So where are we? Well, we are in a world of the good creator, God. But what's the world like? Well, Genesis 1 goes into great poetic detail explaining it to us. Last night I went for a run around the foreshore of the harbour, one of those kind of strange COVID runs where it's quite empty. But beautifully last night, we saw that the moon at the moment is, is rising in its full and glorious form. And particularly as it rises over past the opera house, it's just like this huge globe stuck on a black sky. And it's interesting watching people as you, you, you kind of see it, because they literally stop in their tracks. Creation instills in us wonder and awe, and we probably all know that feeling, whether it's from the grandness of a view or to the wonder of holding new life in your hands. When we come across something wonderful in creation, it instills in us wonder. Why is that? Well, Genesis 1 is God's answer. But Genesis 1 comes to us in a particular form of writing. It's like poetry. We can tell that because it's a highly structured chapter in the Bible. And it's trying to evoke something in us. It's trying to evoke that sense of wonder, both at the creator and the creation. It's not written like a textbook. 
and so therefore doesn't address the questions that we may assume a textbook would give us. But it's important that as we look at this account, we come at the Bible on its own terms, in the style that it was written. Well, what does this account tell us about creation? Well, firstly, it tells us that it had a beginning. In the beginning were God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth there is a way of describing everything that exists. If I say I love my children from the tops of their toe to the tips of their toes, tops of their heads, the tips of their toes, I'm saying that I love everything about them. And that's the same with heavens and earth. The cosmos and the world had not always existed. There was a beginning when the entire cosmos was brought into existence. We are in a world that God created, and we are told that he created it by his word. When you look at items that you own or clothes, you'll see on the label often is printed their origin, made in, and everything in creation is labelled with an imprint made by God. But secondly, we see that it's an ordered creation. It's ordered because God created it, and it's not a result of chaotic and accidental forces. And this is highlighted in the structure of Genesis 1 itself. God is presented like a divine artist. He creates the settings on the first three days, and then he goes on to fill it. So he brings form in days one, two, and three, separating light from darkness, waters from the sky and the sea, separating dry plants and creation from the sea, and then he goes on to fill it. He brings fullness to it in days four, five, and six, creating lights to fill the day and night, creating birds and fish to fill the sky and sea, the creation of animals and humans to fill the land. It's a highly ordered account. Creation is no accident. There is an order to things. And what we will see is that flourishing exists when we run with the grain of this reality. But the third thing we see is that it is good. At every point of his creative work, God contemplates and declares his creation good. He repeats a fourfold fashion each day evaluating his work. We see an announcement and God said and then a command, let there be a report and it was so. But then significantly an evaluation and God saw that it was good. Creation that God creates is good. It's the same Hebrew word as beautiful. Later, the expression is found of Isaac describing his future bride, Rebecca, as beautiful. At the high point of creation is humanity. And then God describes his whole creation as very good, exceedingly beautiful. In Genesis, God is like any good craftsman. He's deeply pleased in what he has made. His creation and humanity bring him 
delight. And this account is trying to evoke a similar response in us. Namely, wonder, to stand back and behold the artwork of the creation and indeed its creator and with him declare it very good. But often we come at this text and ask the how question or, or by what process. This is a modern scientific question. And it's a good question, but it's not a question that this account addresses. There is a difference of opinion here. Some take this account as a literal account of real events. Others as like a parable, a literary way of describing real events. But the reality is we're not told. But we are told that a good God created a good world by his word. So we need not think that there is a conflict between faith and science. Actually, in this account, creation is presented as ordered and capable of being known. This has motivated scientific study rather than diminished it it throughout history. However, what is clear is, as with the pagan myths, the biblical account is a million miles away from a version of a scientific story that explains the world's origin purely as accident. God made this world, he made it ordered, and he made it good. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that this world matters to God. He made it and it brought him delight, and so it should bring us delight. Also, we should enjoy it and care for it. Creation care is part of the worship of God. It honours God's purposes for it. There's more to say in this picture, and it gets complicated, but we should take that point initially as we start. Well, then the second question is, and shorter one, why are we here? What are we here for? This question addresses purpose and meaning, and the answer centres on two verses, 26 and 27 where it speaks of humanity being made in God's image. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Then in verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he he created them. And what image of God here means has prompted much discussion. But most seem to agree that there is two related themes that it has a a relational and a royal function. Firstly, there is a a relational or a familial function. To be made in God's image is to be like God's offspring, as it were. Not God's, but those who bear the family likeness. We were created to have relationship with God, to commune with him, We are persons like God in that we can speak, think, enter consciously into deep relationships. Deep relationship is at the core of what it means to be human, and God created us with these capacities. But we are also created to relate to one another. Part of being human, what we are here for, is to relate with one another. 
God creates humanity as male and female under him. Both are created in the image of God. Both complement the other. The presence of the other should elicit joy and gratitude, as you see Adam express it in chapter 2. And in creation, marriage is given for procreation, but also as a gift for a husband and wife to enjoy intimacy and companionship. But the picture here is not limited to marriage. Some of us are not married, but beautifully, in a poetic way, this expresses our need of relationships in Genesis 1 with other humans to be human, whether through marriage or family or friends. One author put it well, we are made to love and to be loved. And as we are loved and love, we become fully alive. So being made in God's image, why are we here? Well, there's a relational function to it. We exist to commune with God, have relationship with him and with one another. But also there is a royal function to it. We were created to rule In verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In chapter 1, God is presented as a great king and God grants us the privilege of ruling the world on his behalf. We are to be as his royal stewards, placed in creation to rule over it, but to care for it and to develop all the potential God has laden within it. And we, this requires work. Part of being human is to work. As we have seen in other myths, they diminish the worth of humanity and creation, but here creation and humanity is given the highest dignity. Author John Dixon writes, the notion that everyone whether rich or poor, strong or weak, educated or not, bears the divine image, has inspired the long Western tradition, unknown in pagan history, of regarding human beings as inalienably precious, whatever their utility in the world. So we've seen where we are in creation, created by a good God. Why are we here? Well, there is a relational and a royal function to it. And we're told that this is the ideal picture. This is everything as it's meant to be. God's good reign through God's people over God's good place. We have harmony with God. And that relationship shapes all our other relationships. Our relationship with ourselves in the sense that it stabilises us. We understand ourselves to have great dignity and a common vocation. We also have good and deep harmonious relationships with each other and we delight and care and cultivate the created world. This is a picture of life as it's meant to be. But that's not the picture that most of us experience, is it? It's 30 years ago, there was a film called Grand Canyon and it's a pretty uh, predictable plot line An attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and tries to make a shortcut and drive around it and he gets lost and he ends up in a dodgy part of town and then, surprise, surprise, his fancy car fails. He manages to call for a tow truck but before it arrives, 
Five local toughs surround his car and threaten him. Just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest man, begins to hook up the sports car. And as this gang kind of start to muscle in, the driver takes the leader aside. And he says these words. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Kind of nails a human predicament, doesn't it? It's not the way it's supposed to be. So if something was created so good, how did it go so wrong? Well, that is a question addressed more extensively in chapters 2 and 3. And although it warrants much attention and deep diving, we'll only be able to skim the surface as we close. In creation, God is in charge and relationships are in harmony. However, humanity desire, we see in these chapters, to be in charge, to be their own rulers. In the garden, God places two trees in the centre and they they symbolise the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve have been placed into this garden. And remember, this garden is a world of abundance. I've heard someone describe it as they, they were placed in a world of yes, a world of permission. But God makes one no, one prohibition. They are forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree is, is symbolic of a different way of life to what God intended to defiance. Well, then the snake enters the garden and he represents God's enemy. He engages Eve in conversation and casts doubt upon God's goodness, rule and ways. He lies and says that if they eat, they will not die, but actually become like God. And the tragic thing is Eve doubts and she looks She takes and she eats. And the fruit here, unlike a lot of ancient paintings, doesn't represent something bad like sex. But actually, it's doubting the goodness of God. It's an act of defiance. C.S. Lewis puts it well when he says, it is the stealing of the apple that is bad, not the sweetness. She gives some to her husband, and he is equally culpable. And this act represents defiance, a choosing of our own path, a setting of our own reality, a setting of our own rules, and a rebellion against God. And the Bible calls this sin, and this event, the fall. Much of this story is a mystery but it explains the disastrous effects upon humanity, why things are not as they're supposed to be. And in Genesis 3, we see God rightly judges them, and as a result, all their relationships are cursed. They have a shattered relationship with God, created to commune with him. Now they are exiled from his presence. They have shattered relationships with themselves. They become self-conscious and feel shame. They have a shattered relationship with each other, 
humanity begins and continues to play the blame game and they experience relational tension and breakdown. And then they have a shattered relationship with creation itself. Humanity dominates and abuses rather than cares for creation and creation in return is hostile. But ultimately what we see enter is the great enemy. Death itself enters the picture as the supreme judgment. And chapter 3 closes with God banishing them from the garden. It's paradise lost. Life now exists east of Eden. The garden is guarded and there is no way back, or so it seems. It's a grim picture. And the story could have ended there. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, since the garden, we have all experienced the effects of the fall. We are, by nature, resistant to God's ways. We're, we're bent on our own will. One writer describes ourselves being like a shopping trolley with a bad will. We, we, we turn off path. And because of that, we have all experienced God's judgment. All relationships are broken, and we are unable to get ourselves out of this mess. Well, finally, well, what is the solution? Well, the answer to that will take us nine weeks to get to. But even in this chapter, these chapters, there are glimmers of hope. Hope of a future with God. In our reading today, we saw that on the seventh day, after God had created all things, he rested from what he had made. And it's a picture of the goal of creation Humanity enjoying communion with God in the good world that he placed us. That is a picture of the future, one we will see restored at the end. But how will we get there? How will the holy and loving created God once again dwell with humanity in harmony? How will he restore what is broken in a world subject to the curse. Well, in the midst of judgment, even in these passages, we see glimpses of God's gracious intervention. See, though in shame they hide from God, God moves towards them. He covers their shame and their nakedness in chapter 3. And we also get a glimpse of a future, a line a child of Eve who would one day overturn the effects of the fall. It's only a glimmer. God says to the serpent when he curses him, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's saying that a child of Eve, an heir of Eve, will one day overturn one day restore, one day remake a broken world and overcome sin and death. And Jesus, whom we read in Colossians, is that heir. He is the divine son who spoke the world into existence, but he's also at his incarnation the son who moved toward us in love, who came and announced that the kingdom of God has drawn near and through his life, death and resurrection will remake what has been broken. Through Christ, we are rightly restored in communion with God. 
united around his son and in him we have the promise of a renewed creation. That is our end point coordinate, but there are many stops in our journey before them. We began by saying that stories produce meaning in our lives. They shape the way we view and interpret the world and ourselves. Well, the Bible is the true story that makes sense of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of creation. That though this world, subject to sin, we can still see your fingerprints in the beauty and the wonder of the created world. And we praise you and thank you for it. But Lord, we know that you are both creator and redeemer. We thank you for Jesus, the divine son who spoke the world into existence to affirm its goodness, but also who entered this world as a man in order to redeem it. Lord, as we look at this picture of Christ's work for us over these coming nine weeks, would you thrill our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen.